0: On this episode of the Engendered Survivor Story series, we speak with Nanette Chisholm, a survivor of officer-involved domestic violence, or domestic violence with a police officer. We speak with Nanette about her experience as a survivor, the response from law enforcement, and how her experience was both informed and enabled by a culture of sexism, misogyny, and victim-blaming in law enforcement that intersects with police brutality across the country. We also explore the relevance of proposed reforms such as defunding the police and restorative justice to building a culture of accountability for abuse. Welcome, Nanette. Good morning. Thank you for having me, Terry. So this is obviously a conversation that's first about you and your experience, but I'm also really excited to get into you know what's happening on a larger scale, the macro scale, the protests that are happening across our country and its reverberations across so many different parts of our society. Um, But let's start with your story first. Can you tell us briefly what was your experience like as a domestic abuse survivor in an officer-involved police violence relationship?
1: Well, back in uh, the end of 2014, I decided to explore the world of online dating for the first time. And um, my ex-boyfriend and I actually met online. And March of 2015, we finally met in person. And everything appeared, seemed to be a great connection in the beginning. And the relationship escalated very quickly. And looking back now, I could certainly say that it seemed too good to be true at the time which in and of itself is a red flag right but i didn't understand that at the time and the the abuse was verbal and psychological and it escalated rather quickly within the relationship but i did not understand the definition of abuse of domestic violence i thought abuse was strictly physical and i had no clue that abuse could be verbal psychological and the other forms that we're aware of under the umbrella. About three weeks into the relationship, I noticed he would speak to me in a very commanding tone of voice, a very authoritative tone of voice, and would have a very commanding presence around me, much like law enforcement officers are trained to do on scene. Right? Well, that that carried over into the relationship, and there was um, a lot of a lot of gaslighting a lot of psychological manipulation, uh, your typical abusive relationship where things are easily twisted around uh, back onto the survivor. And I noticed that the relationship didn't feel right, but I couldn't define it. I didn't understand what was wrong. So being a person who traditionally, has been a people pleaser, so to speak, Um, I thought I could make things better. And I excused away a lot of his behavior and blamed it on his job specifically. I think we all know that being a law enforcement officer can be very stressful. And there are a lot of things that they do have to deal with on a day-to-day basis that I certainly would not be able to deal with. And so I had a lot of respect for that and gave him a lot of leeway and made a lot of excuses for his behavior. Um, I had a girlfriend who whose husband was in law enforcement, and I kind of started confiding in her and talking to her about his behavior and the way he was treating me and dismissing me. And she she couldn't relate. She said her husband is not like that, so that is not her experience. And so I started to kind of shift and see things in a different in a different light and think, well, maybe maybe it is him. And so there were times when I would call him out on his behavior and his treatment of me, and he would always excuse it away or turn it around on me. And we had many incidents where he was starting to escalate in terms of, you know, specifically one time he was very upset with me because I didn't leave a restaurant when he wanted me to leave the restaurant. I was actually in the middle of eating my salad and he wanted to leave right then and there. And I thought it was a joke. Uh, But he wasn't joking and uh, he made me get my salad to go. We proceeded to go to his vehicle and he proceeded to yell at me in the car, telling me that when he tells me to do something, I better do it. And he proceeded to pound his fists on the steering wheel. And that was a moment that I'll never forget because it's it scared me. It was the first time he actually made me shake.
0: How far into the relationship was this at that point?
1: That was four months into the relationship, the steering wheel incident. And it shook me to my core, literally and figuratively. And that is when I started to shift a little bit about four months in and started to kind of wonder, who is this man? Who is he? And there were other incidents where, you know, he wanted to force me to be a mountain biker. He's a mountain biker. He loves to mountain bike, but he wanted me to love it as much as he did or does. And I was not feeling it. And he was very forceful and intimidating. Um, he he gave me lessons. He made me take lessons with him. And he said that if I didn't enjoy mountain biking in a very stern tone of voice, it's going to be a problem. Now, how does one interpret that? Well, I interpreted it both ways. Either the end of the relationship, or as as a threat that something bad would happen if I didn't like it, didn't enjoy it. So there was a lot of that coercion. There was a lot of intimidation, and just a lot of um, kind of a paternal attitude towards me, like I was a child and he was my father. And so, approximately seven months into the relationship, you know, I started to take a harder look and became curious about him and who he is. And so I Googled his name online one night and I didn't find anything and it still wasn't sitting right with me. And so uh, I decided to Google his nickname and I found a, a public profile for a dating website. And it, it immediately, this sense of dread and, and my, my, my stomach, my heart, everything just sank. And I knew something definitely was not on the up and up here. And I confronted him and of course he denied it and came up with all sorts of excuses, which logically in that moment, I can look back and realize I wasn't buying it and I, and it just didn't feel right to me. And actually two days after I confronted him and he denied it, I was sitting at work one day and he sent me a text message while I was at work saying that, you know, he contacted the dating website and they took the link down and, uh, His it was an advertisement and he didn't give them permission to use his his image as an advertisement. I mean, it was this whole big story. And then at the end of the text message, he wrote something to the effect of having said that, I don't think this relationship is going to work out because you have trust issues.
0: Were you struggling with that gaslighting or at the time, did you... Were you easily manipulated by it? Like, did you, did you believe it and internalize it? Like, oh my God, I do have trust issues. What's wrong with me?
1: No, actually, I knew I didn't have trust issues because at that point I was so far into really questioning him and who he is. And my body was physically reacting to the signals that I was getting that I knew it, I knew it wasn't me. I knew it wasn't. And after some time went by, after the relationship ended, I, I started to question, was any of this real? Was did any of this even happen? And it was just this really surreal experience that I'll never forget. And, you know, I looked at it logically and I said he flipped it back on me. And then I thought about it a little bit more and I thought, well, you know, if you think about it after the the coercion and the gaslighting and the intimidation and and the chastising and the power and control issues and not feeling right about him. Well, at that point, yeah, of course, I was starting to have some trust issues, obviously. Hello. But, you know, that was pretty typical throughout the entire relationship. And I have I have so many incidents that I wrote down and I still have that list to this day. And speaking of that list, I initially created that list to vent and to never forget and to process. After the relationship ended uh, September 17th of 2015, several months went by. And to continue the process of processing, I wrote an email to his chief of police and I had no intention of sending it. It was just a way for me to like get it out. And I kept that draft in a file. And probably about 6 months after the relationship ended, I was still kind of struggling with him not being held accountable. As all of us do, you know, we want the abusive person to be held accountable. And about 6 months afterwards, I opened up that draft and I reread it and I and I fixed the grammar and I fixed the spelling and I made a decision right then and there. The universe aligned and said send it. And I sent that email to his chief of police, and it highlighted what had been happening to me during the seven-month period that he and I were together. And I hit the send button, and I felt a sense of empowerment, and I felt felt a sense of relief. And I didn't expect anything to come of that email at all, because by that point, I had already started researching officer-involved domestic violence. And had already reached out to other survivors that I came upon, or they came upon me online. And I realized, you know, for a lot of OIDB survivors, it's very rare to get justice because of the thin blue line and because of the brotherhood and the connection. And I was surprised about a week later, an investigator from a neighboring D- county, a neighboring DA's office reached out to me via email and said that he was opening up an investigation. Into this, and do I want to talk? And I said, absolutely. And I was actually shocked not only that he had reached out to me, but for an abusive relationship that did not involve physical violence, it was strictly verbal and psychological. I was surprised. And when I present at conferences, or I speak to sororities, or I speak to law enforcement, I always make a point to to applaud that particular chief because I thought he would just file me away and nothing would come of it because it was verbal and
0: psychological
1: and not physical. And I applaud him. And I still to this day, every time I I give a presentation. So I met with that investigator and I spoke for an hour and a half and he just let me talk. And I left that meeting and drove down the mountain back home and I felt This huge weight had been lifted off my shoulders because someone that had power and control over my perpetrator knew or was advised what had happened behind the scenes and who his officer is behind the scenes, behind closed doors. And I had an option. I could read the report because they needed to talk to him as well. And the investigator said, we will talk to him as well. And I could read that report. And I thought hard about it for days. And I decided I didn't want to read the report because at that point, I had made so much progress compared to where I had been six months prior in my healing. I didn't want to read the report because I didn't want to get angry. I was done being angry. I wanted to just move forward with my life. And I knew that his version would be full of manipulation and half-truths and lies. And I just didn't want to go there. And it was the best decision I ever made because that incident was exactly what I needed to move forward and to heal. So I do not know specifically if he was terminated because of what he did to me. But what I can tell you is that he is no longer employed at that department. And the last I knew, he was no longer employed as an officer of the law in the state of Colorado.
0: When you decided to end your relationship, you said you dated for seven months. What Mm -hmm. was that experience like? Was there resistance on his part?
1: No, no, no. He's the one that actually ended it, remember, because I had trust issues.
0: Oh, (laughs) so I thought that was just a conversation. No, no, no. That was
1: it. That That was was it. Wow.
0: So you were very lucky. I was very lucky. You know, in the context of all of this.
1: Right, right. And, you know, I'm very lucky in the sense that he didn't employ any stalking type tactics, or at least none that I know of, you know, that I was aware of. But but that was that. So what's what's interesting, Terry, uh, something else I want to really highlight here is, you know, when when a survivor gets out of a relationship, there's a lot of of processing that needs to be done. And a lot of things about him just didn't feel right. And one of the things that didn't feel right to me is I kept thinking, I cannot be the only woman that he's ever done this to. So I actually used to be on his social media and I had remembered some names that kind of stuck out women that would occasionally comment on his posts or like his posts. And I remembered who those women are, you know, the universe works in mysterious ways. There's a reason I remembered those names And one woman in particular that I reached out to was an ex-girlfriend of his um, when he was a law enforcement officer in a different state. And I reached out to her and they were together for about two years and she validated me. She verified everything. He was the same way towards her. And that was also something that helped me heal. I'm I'm sad that she had to go through what I went through as well, but I realized it wasn't me. I'm not the only woman that he did this to. And he was actually terminated from that other department in the other state because of his act of violence, not against her, but another woman that she knew in that particular town that he
0: had inflicted violence on.
1: And so it's, it's, it's a pattern with him.
0: Right. So I've had um, friends of mine who've dated law enforcement officers, and you said verbal and psychological abuse. I mean, they don't need physical abuse because they carry no. weapons, so right. if it leads to that, then surely it would result in more severe consequences for them, more obviously severe consequences. And that's the whole point of coercion, that you don't even, it, that the threat of violence, the threat of, you know, the fear, the, the, whatever other tactics they're using psychologically to subordinate you mm-hmm. is, is enough. Yes. I want to address that. You now are national speaker on this topic, very interested in officer involved domestic violence. What's your understanding in terms of the state by state um, guidelines that are required for someone to become a police officer? And in terms of psychological assessments, you know, I've heard that there's, we just had a guest on our show whose specialty is um, sexism and misogyny and victim blaming. And she does, she has worked on attitudinal testing around sexism and misogyny. And we discussed on that show how wouldn't it be great for us to be able to add attitudinal testing in so many different fields. And I'm guessing law enforcement is not one of them. Like they're not testing for their degree of domination and uh, (laughs) power and control and, and, (laughs) and views towards women and black people and other minority groups, I'm guessing, right? Correct. Now, a majority
1: of departments will employ psychological testing with a psychologist that the department has hired to to do that work for them. But as as many people may not know or may know, I don't know, you know, there are some folks out in the world who are very good at deceit. And unfortunately, the ones that are really, really good at it can manipulate psychological testing. And there have been studies done on that, as a matter of fact. And there are a lot of departments that say they do employ psychological testing. Do they? I don't know. I, I would like to think that major, a majority of them do because it is, it's is—it's very imperative that they do that and have that in their file. I do know that there are departments that will periodically, maybe three years into employment, do another test. Um, but that in and of itself, doing that additional testing when they're already in the door uh, is very rare. In a perfect world, we would be able to bring people perfectly. That's actually a challenge because, you know, in my case, with my ex-boyfriend being terminated from another department previously in his career, not all departments are equal in terms of the type of digging that they do at an HR level. And particularly some rural communities, you know, where it's harder to recruit officers, you know, I, I would hate to point the finger at every single rural police department in the country and say that they skip steps. But unfortunately, I've heard some stories where there are departments out there because it is hard to hire where they will skip a step or two and bring people on the force who maybe aren't as desirable and should not be working for them. But out of desperation, they'll hire some undesirable folks under their force. And that's a whole other topic that we need to look at. I would like to think that there are more departments that are looking at uh, using more strict screening tools, and I hope that that continues. They say they're going to, and unfortunately, because I'm not on the inside, I don't know if some of these, these tools are accurately being used or not. I wish I could speak more to that, but I can't.
0: I want to be careful on us being using the term psychological testing, because in no way do I think psychological testing is, is, a, is a, an accurate assessment tool for these kinds of, you know, mindsets, like we've talked, right. you know, it's not about the psychology, it's not a mental illness to be a sexist or right. misogynist. It's a mindset, right? So that's why I, I refer to our guests as attitudinal testing. On the other hand, there have been there are personality tests, which are different. Personality uh-huh. tests are the Russians employed personality tests to identify who on Facebook were the kinds of personalities that they could easily easily manipulate. 2016 election and which groups, you know, they could target for, for hate. <laughs> and, uh-huh. and so those personality tests are based on how extroverted you are, how open-minded you are, how conscientious you are, you know, the ocean cycle personality test, for example. And so to the extent that people who are drawn to a profession like law enforcement, where you're going to have a set of tactics that you're going to be trained in to use as part of your job, and those tactics are about exerting power over a group of people that you're supposed to be the citizens, that you're supposed to be serving and protecting, there's going to be a certain personality. And so it's really about how do we assess number 1 the personality, but how do we change the kinds of people that we attract to that profession so that the incentives that they have for doing well are shifted, right? It's not about, you know, how many people they're arresting, but how, how changing the outcome. So it's about to what level are they keeping communities safe and healthy?
1: And, you know, Terry, I think a lot of that starts at the top and that starts with leadership that starts with the chief of police, first and foremost. And I think as time goes on and I've been in this movement for for five years, and I think that as time goes on, I have actually met with some chiefs of police in the state of Colorado and there is a shift happening. Um, It's not happening fast enough for me, but there are some chiefs out there that are a little bit more progressive in their views, and I don't necessarily mean progressive politically, but a bit more progressive in their views about the types of folks that they're hiring on, and there are some chiefs that are very cognizant of the fact that that profession does draw folks with power and control issues, and, you know, they they are attempting to kind of screen that out a little bit earlier. But again, just like with any sort of testing, you know, if, if someone knows what's happening on the receiving end of that test, you know, things can easily can easily be manipulated. And I keep using that word because it's such a dominant trait in most abusers that I find it hard to believe that we can 100 percent screen anybody out Um, personality tests, psychological tests, etc. But it starts at the top. It starts with leadership being more informed and leadership communicating with other leadership and coming up with innovative ways to try to to suss these folks out who do have these issues. And, you know, we're in a very interesting time right now, Uh, unfortunately, with the murder of George Floyd where people are starting to scrutinize much more closely law enforcement and departments and leadership than we used to. And so in that sense, I think it's going to force some departments to have to really take a look at, at how they need to reassess what they're doing and during their hiring practice and, and keeping on top of folks after they've already been hired and walked through the door and hold each other accountable and have a zero-tolerance policy for any sort of abuse of power and to call that out or intervene when they see it or hear about it and empower their other officers to not feel fear or intimidation if they do choose to speak up about a fellow officer who is employing tactics that are abusive on the street or behind closed doors.
0: Well, I mean, that's kind of besides a culture shift, which is big. um, It's also really hard to do because, I mean... I don't have any personal experience but just from consuming television and films if your partner is corrupt and he carries a gun and you know he has 10 different police officers behind him who are going to stand by him you don't know what's going to happen one day when you're walking home exactly. what accident you're going to befall upon or your family and so if it's you know layers and layers of corruption not to say that these institutions are corrupt but they're they're certainly not prone to positive change because of the ways in which, you know, the members of those institutions can hide behind violence and intimidation. Correct. What do you propose we can do to start building that culture from the inside, not necessarily from the outside in terms of external pressure?
1: Well, for me personally, what I've chosen to do, I I actually, uh, reach out to law enforcement and I, and I meet with them because I discovered fairly early on that I can talk to this person or that person, but until we actually change the culture from within, nothing's going to happen. And so what I've taken it upon myself to do is actually meet with law enforcement behind closed doors and just tell my story and share my experience and and help them understand from a survivor's perspective what it looks like when your perpetrator is in law enforcement. And all of those barriers to reporting that that happen for victims um, if they choose to report their law enforcement perpetrator. And that's what I choose to
0: do. You know, and I occasionally will speak to legislators and let them know about this issue. I mean, that's not a very scalable model. (laughs) It's not. And, and And,
1: And I'm one person and I'm just doing what I can here in this state to try to make a change because it is such a wall. A huge wall to overcome. And, you know, here in Colorado, we just passed a law that goes into effect in 2023. We have reform. And, you know, part of that is ending um, qualified immunity and requiring body cams. And, you know, that we were the first state to pass a reform bill. And, you know, I'm all about reform. If it can protect law enforcement, if it can protect citizens, I think everyone wins all around. And so, you know, that's that's part of what I'm trying to get people in this state to understand is how ref- how OIDV needs to be included in that reform, because it correlates to abusive power on the street. Abusive power happens at home behind closed doors as well. So slowly but surely, people are starting to make that connection.
0: Right. I mean, I've always said when you look at when you look at organized crime, and when you look at, I mean, one of our guests is was a former chief crown prosecutor in Britain, and he prosecuted gender terrorism. So crimes that were you know, included domestic violence and coercive control, honor killings, uh, gang related uh, incidents, sex trafficking, child marriage. So all of those fell under the term gender terrorism. And, you know, we've also seen in the U.S. that in Quincy, Massachusetts, there was a prosecutor there, a DA there, who, you know, realized that a neighborhood prison had the majority of the inmates had a history of domestic violence or abuse. And so that domestic violence is, it's like with adverse childhood experiences, is a precondition for setting up a child for future harms in in terms of physical and mental and psychological relationship and employment disruptions and dysfunctions. And so to the extent that we can prevent or address domestic violence and create systems of accountability for domestic violence, we can keep it from creating societal harm. Like with mass shootings, I've always said, Every time you look at a mass shooter, there's some history of sexism, misogyny, or domestic violence that's been ignored. And if we actually did something about it, they wouldn't have harmed other people in society. And so I guess to the point that you just made about reform, for example, body cams, lots of (laughs) police departments across the country have body cams, but they turn them off, right? And what are the consequences? Like, if you're not going to have enforcement of them, they should be fired, right? I think. Because if they're turning them off, there's something they're hiding, obviously. And so they've already committed whatever those, if, if they fall under like a civil code or something, they should at least be fined and censured in some way. The, just the turning it off it, isn't it of itself a, a form of a, obstruction or, or a conspiracy to commit some kind of crime. I would I interpret it as that as an outsider. And yet, police departments across the country are letting police officers get away with it every day.
1: Yes, that's true. You know, and, and like I say, when I when I speak, you know, every department can put an officer involved domestic violence policy in place within their department. Only 33 percent of departments actually have an OIDV policy in place. But the problem is enforcement of the policy. And that is a huge, a huge wall that I can't seem to get over. I mean, I can go in and I can speak to law enforcement all day long. I can speak to you all day long. I can speak to program advocates and system advocates all day long. But once I leave the room, if they're not putting into place what I suggest or what I recommend or enforcing what they already have in
0: place. Right. So in terms of creating systems of accountability, what can we do as a society? you know, obviously there's a lot of people fighting for ending qualified immunity for police officers, which is the first step, um, where police officers basically are shielded from any kind of civil or criminal convictions, right? Is there such a thing as a civil conviction? I guess so, maybe. Um, So, so they're shielded from civil and criminal convictions uh, and not convictions, um, claims. Charges. (laughs) Charges, yes. Charges. (laughs) And and so to that extent, yes, it's a first step. But then mm-hmm. you also have to make sure, like, let's say we're going to now be able to go to court with them. You want to make sure that the people like the judges and the, the other decision makers, the jury members, are shifted in their mindset as well, that they don't have this police officers oh, are omnipotent kind of mentality where they can do no wrong. And they're, if they're testifying, they must be telling the truth when we know that's not the case.
1: Correct. A lot of juries actually side with officers, because I don't know about you, but I grew up, you know, believing that everyone tells the truth and people that wear the uniform tell the truth and they have to be honorable and they have to be reliable and trustworthy. And, you know, I personally have experienced in my relationship, that's not the case. That's not a qualifier. (laughs) You know, unfortunately, all the time in the job description. um it's supposed to be, but it's not always, uh, in my case with my ex-boyfriend. And juries have a tendency to believe law enforcement officers over anybody else. And that is a huge barrier when it comes to reporting as well. Uh, when survivors choose or not choose not to report is the system in and of itself tends to favor law enforcement when complaints come up uh, via the public, whether it's domestic violence or not. And you also have DAs, you know, the system itself is very reliant on law enforcement. They partner together. And so that is that is a huge fear that a lot of victims have, you know, well, if I report, not only am I am I gonna be believed or not, but if it even gets to court, are they gonna be dismissive of me? Are they gonna Are they gonna side with the law enforcement officer because they do work so closely together? So that stops a lot of victims in their tracks right there from even reporting because you, you your mind automatically shifts to the future and how far this can or cannot go. And if you don't get anywhere with with the department itself, you're not going to get anywhere beyond justice beyond that department. And so you know, not only does it start with leadership, but it's going to take associations like the International Association of Chiefs of Police, you know, they have a model policy that they recommend. And yes, I know that they're only an association, but I believe that they need to be way more vocal about this issue than they are. And they need to get this out into departments across the world, because this happens in other countries as well, OIDD. And they need to have a more vocal voice about this issue and stop letting it hide in the shadows. And we need to stop making excuses for officers that perpetrate domestic violence and sexual violence. And we need to hold them more accountable. We need more domestic violence programs, local and national, to start really vocalizing this issue and not be as afraid. And and I know that there's a lot that goes into speaking out about OIDD but holding these folks accountable and having these conversations and calling them to task and calling them out on this issue. You know, I'm only one woman and I have a lot of energy left in me, but some days I'm exhausted because I feel sometimes like I'm taking all this on and, and, and it's, it's my pleasure to do so because I feel so passionately about it. But you know, writing and talking to the IACP, if they don't follow through after I've already written that letter or had that conversation within their walls, law enforcement has to hear it from law enforcement.
0: But that's the problem that I think so much of our society has refused to address systemic sexism and misogyny. And, you know, even in the nonprofit sector, of organizations who are serving survivors of domestic violence and sexual assault. I've been, you know, if, you've, if you listen to my podcast, I've shared very frustratingly how I've been trying since the George Floyd protests to, because uh, this is now part of, you know, our discussions in advocacy meetings, I've been trying to say, can we also have anti-sexism training? Like, everybody is starting at least to make the move towards implementing some sort of anti-racism training which is great but it's not intersectional if you don't talk about sexism and sexism is at the root of so many of these you know issues it's especially when you're talking about <laughs> sex-based violence and oppression like sexism is the root of it and and if people are going to be in positions of power professionally paid by our tax dollars you know, to enforce protective orders, for example, or to, quote, unquote, you know, protect and serve the community, they should be screened out if they have sexist and misogynistic ideologies that prevent them from doing their job. And since COVID, I've heard so many times, again and again, how orders of protection are being ignored, you know, by police officers Um, And so it's already been determined by a judge when you have an order of protection. Yes, there is some, you know, clear evidence that this person is in danger or is going to be harmed in some way. And this other person needs to keep away, you know, and if that's not being enforced, we need the police to step in. And the police are just kind of, you know, throwing their hands up in the air. It's such indifference and, and almost contempt, I've heard in these circles.
1: Yes. And unfortunately, I don't I don't know if you've if you've looked into this yet or not, Terry, but there was a case involving Jessica Gonzalez um, versus the town of Castle Rock, which was taken all the way to the United States Supreme Court. And it specifically says, you know, law enforcement, they don't have to.
0: Yeah, it's not mandatory. Thanks to Justice Scalia. Mm -hmm. It's not mandatory for law enforcement to enforce protective orders, which is why we Mm -hmm. need that. ERA. Right, but 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 just you know, but, but it comes back to just doing the right thing. Why can't they just people do can't the do right? the right thing? We have to have mechanisms to incentivize <laughs> people, so there are consequences.
1: Right, and and so I'm all about you know having citizen oversight boards, and I am all about people really reaching out to law enforcement, which a lot of people, some people, just don't feel comfortable doing. I do, I do because. It's what I do. And I feel comfortable doing it. But, you know, people have, you know, speaking up, you know, and, and not letting people suppress your voice. And I know that sometimes it's easier said than done. But, you know, it really takes uh, citizens to really to watch these folks and these officers and the, and the leadership and saying, we're watching you. And luckily, luckily, you know, the media is becoming more aware of officer involved domestic violence specifically. I mean, if you look at my Twitter page, it is full of news articles about officers that have been fired for not only, you know, sexual assault, but domestic violence um, or who've had charges placed on them for embezzlement. I mean, my Twitter page lists. Every day I'm finding some article about a law enforcement officer who's done the wrong thing, who's committed a criminal act. And so thanks to the media, this is being brought out more and more in the open, at least during the last four or five years that I've noticed since I've been doing this work. And it takes more people to just bring it out in the open and and question leadership and say, hey, what's going on here? You know, and holding them accountable and putting the spotlight on their department And sometimes in an unfavorable light until they until they do something about it. And it's it's hard work. It's it's exhausting work at times, but it's work that's very important and needs to be done. And it does take an entire community to do it. It takes the media. It takes me. It takes you. It takes people to not consider this a private family matter any longer because domestic violence impacts every single system in in all communities. It impacts our educational system, it impacts our healthcare, it impacts our our healthcare system, it impacts public service, public safety. There is not one single space that is not impacted by domestic violence. And the level of lethality is even scarier when your perpetrator is a law enforcement officer because they have access to those weapons. They know where the shelters are. They have relationships inside the DA's office and they have a lot of power, and we need to start spotlighting this.
0: I agree. And like you said, it permeates all aspects, all sectors of society. And when you don't take officer-involved domestic violence seriously, these individuals are going to go out there and you know, harm the community. They're going to use these same tactics on others' quote, I put that in quote others, whether it be black people or poor people or communities um, that are disenfranchised in some other way, because Mm -hmm. they can, they can get away with it because they're getting away Mm -hmm. with it at home.
1: Right, right. And, you know, the saddest thing about this is not necessarily what I, what I personally experienced. Um, Something that I, that I really have a problem with is, you know, his abuse of me really, really made it hard for me to trust law enforcement. And the work that I do, of course, I'm exposed to a lot now about what happens behind the scenes in law enforcement and culture and misogyny and sexism and having experienced that and witnessed that myself in doing this work. Um, but that trust was taken uh, that I had. And you know, there, there, there are a couple of law enforcement officers in this state that I communicate with who are kind of helping me rebuild that. And they truly are good guys and they get it. But again, they're only one or
0: two guys. Yes. And, and <laughs> I've, I've, I know anecdotally that from my friends who have been involved with law enforcement, none of them have been positive relationships. They've thankfully ended those relationships, but um, some with you know, some fear still, because one law enforcement officer, like you were talking about stalking, was cyber-stalking her still, and, um, you know, lied about his weapons, how many he had. And, you know, if he lied about it to her, he probably lied about it to his department. And so if one of them were to be used in the committal of a crime, there's no proof that it ever existed.
1: You know, I'd be curious. I don't think anyone's really done a, a study on this, but I'd be curious To see the rate of women that have been alleged to commit suicide when involved with a law enforcement officer, because I've heard many cases of women that have supposedly committed suicide, like the Michelle O'Connell case down in Florida that happened. Her her ex-husband still has not been held accountable for that and her family, the has been really trying hard to get him to be held accountable. But, you know, speaking of weapons, you know, how many women have gotten a hold of their boyfriend's service weapon and committed suicide with it? It happens. And I'd be curious to see what the statistics are on that.
0: Well, I I think I hear your nuance there's suicided (laughs) and there's suicide and there's probably both, right? Because when you get to a point of despair where nobody in the system can be your ally, you can't trust your police officer, Mm ex-husband's supervisor, or whoever is above him or above him, then where can you turn to? And if you're living in fear, you're living in fear of your life because you're being stalked, cyber stalked, and your child or children are being threatened and your friends and family, that can make you become very despondent and feel very guilty and I've you know I know many situations that haven't thankfully haven't led to that outcome but certainly those those thoughts pass through and and we also see this like in any situation where survivors are not receiving accountability and they're being victim blamed like in the hunting ground documentary on campus sexual assault so many of those stories of the rape victims were told by their parents because they had committed suicide. So this is, this is the case across any situation where we need, to, we need to count those in the data as well, the statistics, because what I'm trying to do is make sure that we're capturing outcome data in family courts, but those outcome data isn't just the outcome of who's getting custody, who's, whether the custody is get, getting placed within the abuser, but whether the survivor and the children later on, they get killed or commit suicide or maybe suffer long-term chronic health problems because of the exposure to trauma, living with abuse.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Now, one other point I would like to mention, going back to internally at departments, we've got to stop promoting these guys. When a spouse, when a girlfriend comes forward and says, he did this, he did that, he abused me, and Internal Affairs launches an investigation and... You know, it's it's credible. You know, we've got to stop promoting these guys. I can't tell you. I know a woman in Florida. I know a woman in New Jersey. And after their divorces and the accusations, the evidence, evidence, actual evidence was brought to the Department of Physical Abuse. Both of their ex-spouses ended up getting promoted two or three years after all of this was brought to light. We've got to stop that it has to stop. And again, that comes from leadership and that comes from organizations like the IACP and being very clear. And, you know, legislation, unfortunately or fortunately, has to get involved. But it's getting legislators to listen and take seriously OIDV and not discounting it and thinking that it doesn't happen as much as it does.
0: Well, I also think that I know in New York, I don't know if you've seen the New York City Police Benevolent Association came out and endorsed Trump a couple weeks ago. And Trump is like, I call him our rapist in chief, our predator in chief, our traitor in chief. He's, he's our abuser in chief. <laughs> and so, so any group of people who are endorsing him, basically, they're showing that they endorse And are complicit with domestic violence and rape and all of these other crimes, whether they're moral or criminal.
1: Mm -hmm. And when you see organizations like that backing Trump and condoning, you know, what comes out of his mouth and his actions, you know, that's proof right there and is, is a perfect example of why people don't want to come forward. And report. And then you have people that actually back him and support him, citizens, not necessarily associations and organizations, uh, but actual citizens, including other women who who back him and support him. It's very disheartening. And it is a prime example why in certain regards, we can't move forward because they're overlooking who he is his core, his beliefs, his behavior. And that carries over into society that carries over into juries, you know, people that have that mindset to overlook that behavior. And it's, it's, it's a very scary thing. What's happening right now, the backing that he has when he clearly has exhibited that he's abusive, that he's a predator. And uh, it's very concerning.
0: Well, that's a, Great segue into, you're talking about what's concerning uh, on, a, on a sort of perpetrator, <laughs> instigator level. I want to now bring us to the discussion of what's concerning from an advocacy level. So I, in, only in the past, I would say three to four years, have learned about this concept of quote-unquote restorative justice. And It's apparently different from transformative justice, but sometimes it's used interchangeably. And in New York City, when I was working as a survivor member of um, some of our task forces in domestic violence, there's certainly a movement within the city, and New York City has a lot of influence across the country, in proposing restorative justice as an alternative to incarceration. And so for survivors, I have relied on whom I call our domestic violence, battered woman movement elders, who have for 30, 40 years, you know, been working with survivors, and they know the power and control dynamics, and they understand coercive control. And they recognize and they've put out research papers showing that this is not an appropriate intervention for power and control situations, which is domestic abuse. So I wanted to get your thoughts about that, because within New York City, the backdrop is such that coercive control is, as you know, a set of tactics that are used that include the psychological, emotional, physical, sexual, financial abuse, and coercion that keeps one person, usually a woman, in an abusive relationship and deprives that person of her liberty, her ability to do for herself. And so as Evan Stark you know, says, it's a gendered liberty crime. And it's been criminalized in different parts of Europe in In Britain, and we're working on that in the U.S. Here, in various states, Um, we have a working group on that. And one of the biggest impediments to that is this idea that you know it goes against what's happening in our criminal justice system, which is racist. Like we get that the mass incarceration was based on the foundation of racist policing, and so those people who are trying to end mass incarceration, which I support. Don't understand that if you criminalize coercive control, you can actually have a stronger tool to do both. You could have a both and scenario where people who are being arrested for domestic abuse under the term coercive control are not going to necessarily only be black and brown men now, because those are the only crimes on the books on the penal code. It's violent crimes. And coercive control is made up of a whole bunch of other things, like you experience psychological, uh, verbal, etc. And so it actually, if it were to be passed, wouldn't necessarily put more black and brown men in prison, but more white men, middle class men, and even upper class men, you know, people who are escaping the law right now. This concept of restorative justice was brought up because in response to our racist policing and mass incarceration, because so many black and map men are being put into prison, but not for domestic violence, for other crimes. And communities of color are the ones who have been dis- disproportionately affected by domestic violence homicides. And in New York City, they account for about half of our domestic violence homicides. And so what's happening is that a lot of the people, like the DAs, Prosecutors are saying, we don't want to put any more black and brown men in prison, even if they're doing crimes, you know, they're committing crimes that are domestic violence related. Because these men are victims of systemic poverty and racism, it's unfair to further traumatize these communities of color. So let's offer alternatives to incarceration like restorative justice. And it's based off of indigenous healing circles where people come together and the community has autonomy in deciding what is accountability for that community. And I've been a very vocal opponent of restorative justice for domestic violence only, because it's being used as an alternative to accountability. And, and certainly it should not be used until Both parties are outside of any system, whether it's the police, criminal justice system, family court system, child welfare system, any system where they have to interact and there might be coercion going on outside of those restorative justice practices. And so I wanted to get your thoughts about that. What is your familiarity with that? I know in Colorado, what exposure have you had there and uh, what are its successes or, or failures?
1: Well, let me let me start off by saying that I, I believe that people are capable of change. However, having said that, they have to want to change and the system cannot force people to change. They have to want it for themselves and they have to be ready to accept that responsibility and that account- accountability within themselves and to society. I believe that restorative justice works in a lot of areas. But I am very skeptical when it comes to utilizing it, when it comes to domestic violence, for exactly the reasons we've been talking about. Abusive personalities are very, very manipulative. And I have very serious concerns about bringing a perpetrator and a victim together to talk it out and to work it out uh, via the system. And that places the victim in a very bad position to possibly be re-manipulated again, or putting that that woman's life in danger. Now, I do believe that we do need to make more resources available for perpetrators if they choose to get assistance, because right now, in most cases, you know, batters into intervention, counseling, that sort of thing is ordered by the system. And, you know, your average, average guy isn't just going to walk into a therapist's office and say, hey, I'm Joe, I, I'm an abuser and I, and I need help. You know, we, we have to we have to make people aware that there's help out there. But we also need to allow allow more therapists to get training and take an interest in that and take it seriously and welcome those folks in and and and, and make those services available. But as far as, you know, a system using it to bring together and, and, and help a victim and a perpetrator, I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a fan of that. I'm not a fan of restorative justice when it comes to domestic violence, because it is just too volatile of a situation. It's too, it's too much of a danger to bring two parties together um, when one person of the two is is a violent perpetrator and extremely manipulative. And I am not a fan of that at all. Um, and I have yet to personally see any examples that have been put forth to all of us to say, Hey, this worked and he's great. And he's living, living a great life and and she's happy and everyone, everything's wonderful. I have yet to see a case where that has truly, truly worked, you know, years later, and perhaps it's too early to tell. I don't know, but I'm very skeptical.
0: Well, even with batter intervention programs, the research results on that don't actually look at, let's say, a year, six months or a year down the line Uh with the victim, not just the batterer, right? right? Self-reported data from the batterer, but the victim saying, I'm safe, I feel, you know, I have autonomy, I have physical and emotional security, and I have the ability to make choices for myself, whether I'm in the relationship or outside of it. Right? And those the survey and data collection for batter intervention programs isn't even longitudinal. So how are we supposed to know whether it works? Uh-huh. And similarly, like with domestic violence, like so much of, you know, I always use the example, if it's not acceptable in the racial context, why is it acceptable in the gender uh-huh. context? That means women are just so far down the totem pole that we don't even get the same... <laughs> Rights and expectations as uh, people of color. So the example for restorative justice is, you know, would you put George Floyd, you know, his family with um, the killers in a Derek restorative Chauvin. justice yeah. circle? Like, yeah. is that going to be accountability for them? Would you put right. a Holocaust survivor with a Nazi in a, you right. know, circle? Why is that? It, okay? Why no? Everybody would laugh in your face. So why is it right. okay with a woman and her abuser? just because right. he says he's going to change. But his mentality is exactly the same as a white supremacist. It's a male supremacist mentality. Mm-hmm.
1: And, you know, and that brings me to the point, you know, it's minimizing, in my opinion, it's minimizing the crime that is being committed against women, this violence against women. It's by using restorative justice in a sense, it's minimizing.
0: Well, this is what they're saying, just so you know. They're saying black and brown women, they want it because they don't want their communities to be further decimated. And they, wa- they don't want their men to go to jail. They need them for to be able to contribute to the household the economics. And so my response is, we need to have equal rights for women. We need to fix the gender pay gap. We need to have the ability to give women tools to empower herself so that she's not relying on some abuser. (laughs) And just just to take it a step further, people who are supporting these practices, just so you know, I'm not going to name names, although, you know, if you look at my Twitter, you'll see (laughs) I name names. But, But there are some people who are actually saying, in this defund the police scenario, let's take some of these resources and give them to abusers, to men, because men who lose their jobs, who are unemployed, there's correlation with unemployment and higher rates of violence in the relationship. And if we give them job training and job skills, and if they have job security, they're not gonna abuse as much. And to me, I just, I'm like, if I could curse on this, I would curse. But like WTF, like no, give the money to the women. Why are we giving it to the men? You're you're increasing the systemic inequities And you're rewarding the abuser for abusing. And I I have no idea how people can justify this, but there are people in the quote unquote progressive circles of defunding police and criminal justice reform who are making these propositions and people are buying into it.
1: It's dangerous. It's dangerous is what it is. It's extremely dangerous to have that mindset. And, you know, that we could go on and on about this subject, but that leads me to another thing along the same lines. You know, it's always the woman that's expected to leave the home. Why, why does the woman, why Why do the children, why are they the ones, why are
0: we the ones that have to leave? They're the perpetrator. We, we, they need to leave. You they are need to right. Go. And we've been saying <laughs> this on the show forever. In other countries, the if people say, well, where does the abuser go? The abuser goes to jail. <laughs> the abuser goes to jail and the victim and the children stay in the home. They're not the ones who are forced to go into the shelter and navigate the homeless shelters and disrupt their lives while the abuser doesn't have any consequences.
1: Mm-hmm. And, and that that comes back to ses- sexism and misogyny. <laughs> so here we
0: are. <laughs> and, and And the advocates who are, If you're working in the nonprofit space, your goal should be to, at some point in the future, not have a need for your service because society readjusts itself in an equitable and just way. And some of these nonprofits who operate shelters, they're all about keeping their shelters open. Well, why don't we change the law so that we don't need shelters so that survivors can stay and they have the means to continue to pay for their rent or mortgage? Let's get rid of shelters, you know, that are dangerous and use that money to put abusers in jail.
1: Right, right, right. That, that makes sense. Thank you. <laughs> Doesn't it, it make sense? But no, if something makes sense, why use it?
0: <laughs> so um, I'll, I know, obviously, I want to qualify. Look, it's not like From a prevention level, I think there's a lot we can do to educate society. We need to make sure that the children that we're raising are not going to have these mindsets where they grow up to want to be to emulate police officers and people in power who use force and violence and intimidation as a tactic to maintain their status.
1: Right, right. And that requires getting into schools. Yes. (laughs) And, you know, if, if parents are unhealthy, how do we expect unhealthy parents to raise healthy children? So, you know, I don't want to put everything on schools because they're already so, they've taken on so much and have to take on so much. But if if these school systems aren't allowing organizations to come in and teach about healthy relationships and consent, et cetera, et cetera, then
0: we're going to continue to have a problem. Well, we have so many ideas. <laughs> that we brought up in today's discussion. Um, I hope that this can be a starting point for uh, our listeners to think about how we can envision a safer and more accountable society and certainly a more accountable police force in this country. Um, Do you have any final words that you want to share with our listeners about what they can do better? Uh, We have this hashtag called Upstander Tips. What they can do better as an upstander to either their friend or family member, or just as, you know, someone who wants to make make a change in society with regard to officer involved domestic violence?
1: Certainly, I would say to survivors, first and foremost, um, what, what, what I always say, you know, it's not your fault, I believe you. I would say to those within law enforcement that your culture needs to change and it starts with you. And it starts with changing the mindset and taking better precautions and having a more open eye and a more open mind to who you're bringing onto your force and paying attention to the first person that comes forward, whether it's a, a private citizen on the street or a wife or a girlfriend who says, you know, here, we have a problem with this officer. Really use that as a red flag and don't dismiss it. And for Program advocates out there in the world start having this conversation, because if you haven't yet, you're going to have an OIDV victim walk through your door and don't turn her away. I've actually heard stories of women being turned away from programs once they reveal that they're perpetrators in law enforcement. For program advocates, reach out to your local law enforcement, whether it's the PD down the street, your local trooper's office, your sheriff's department, and, and start this conversation and come up, a, up with a plan with the chief of police, with internal affairs. If a victim comes forward, what are you going to do? And how are, you, how are we going to hold each other accountable? Because it's on the, the advocacy side as well. Some folks that need to be held a little bit more accountable. And just keep speaking out, just keep talking if you feel safe enough to do so as a victim or survivor, because the more women that speak out, the more women that talk, the more we bring this subject matter to light, the more women whose lives are going to be saved. And there's nothing scarier than having an entire system against you. But if you speak out, it's going to help the next woman and the next woman and the next woman. And I will never be silent about this. And I hope if you feel comfortable speaking out, you're never silent either.
0: Thank you so much, Nanette. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by Can Do It Q&A, a peer-based knowledge platform that connects social service providers in advice, community, and learning. You can join Can Do it Q&A for free at qna.kanduit.com. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show. Please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail.com with your questions.